recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagonia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, August 2nd, 2013. I have some things that I'm just aching to say that I, I, I really don't want to say until tomorrow. I'm going to try to refrain until then. Many of us are in a dilemma, and, and there shouldn't be any dilemma whatsoever. And it, it it does affect quite a few people, even in Christian identity. And the dilemma is what to do with race-mixing children. The godly example is found in Ezra chapter 10. This should be a no-brainer. It, it shouldn't even be a, cr- a question in Christian identity. And everybody in Christian identity should adhere to at least this, even if we disagree on other finer points of Scripture. In Ezra chapter 10, from verse 1, Now when Ezra had prayed, and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him, out of Israel, a very great congregation of men and women and children. For the people wept very sore. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, answered and said unto Ezra, We have trespassed against our God, and have taken strange wives of the people of the land. Most of them were Canaanites and Edomites. Yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives, and such as are born of them, which means the bastard children, according to the counsel of my Lord, meaning Ezra, and of those that tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Race mixing is adultery in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's fornication because of the differences between Hebrew and Greek culture and the use of certain words. And although in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul of Tarsus was talking about a fornicator of a different sort, it is still fornication nonetheless. And he instructs his readers, he instructs the assembly of Corinth to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Yahshua delivering such a one unto Satan, putting him out of the Christian community, ostracizing him from the Christian community and from the family is what must be done. We as Christians must give our wayward brethren room to repent. Even as Christ gave the whore Jezebel room to repent of her fornication, Revelation chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. However, we can never accept the fruits of such great sin, and we can never accept a mixed marriage. Identity Christians cannot by any means accept a mixed marriage even in our own families. We must put away that child. We must put that child out of their lives. It might be a hard thing for a lot of people to do. 
I've done it. I've walked that walk. I've explained that many times in my podcasts. I've put two of my own children away for fornication. Two out of six explicitly for fornication, I've put them away. I told my own daughter back in 2001, I believe it was, she was 18 years old, that she was dead to me. I never wanted to see her again. She was dead. She couldn't see her grandmother. I wouldn't have her in my house. She understood it. My father, before he died, he didn't want anything to do with her either because he felt the same way I did. And she, the, the person she married was apparently white. You wouldn't tell the difference. Blonde hair, green eyes. You wouldn't tell the difference. But I knew better, and I couldn't have it. I told my daughter it was him or me. She chose him. She's dead to me now. That was a long time ago. That was 12 years ago, 11 years ago. That's the way it is. That's the way it should be. There's not, in, in this current onslaught of race mixing and all the propaganda against our race, there's not going to be one family that's not affected by this. That's the gospel of Christ, that father would be divided against son and, and mother would be divided against daughter-in-law. That's the gospel of Christ. Why do you think that would be? That's what happens when your son brings a nigger home. Dad, look what I brought home. He goes out the door. He has to go out the door or you're no Christian. And when you claim to be a Christian identity pastor, and, and, and it's a false claim, but you claim that you've been one for 37 years, and your daughter's with a sand nigger, and she's married to a sand nigger, you would better announce, you had better make a public announcement that you've ostracized that child. Don't try, don't try to hide it and, and then try to um, make false claims later on. No, the moment it happens, you announce that child ostracized. You don't hide that unless you're trying to hide your identity. If you're trying to hide your identity, your true identity, well, then you're going to try to hide that, and you shouldn't be considered a Christian identity pastor by any identity Christian. By any identity Christian in the entire world should not consider you a Christian identity pastor if you're trying to hide your identity. Who the hell are you? Well, that's how we should treat those in our, fa in our own families who race mix. That's how they have to be treated. They have to be ostracized. If they're not ostracized, well, then you're accepting their sin. You've accepted their sin. If you allow them into your company, you've accepted their sin. What does Paul of Tarsus say in, in Romans chapter 1 about accepting sins such as that? That not only they who commit such sins are liable to death, but also they who approve of those who commit them. In other words, when you stand before God in, in your judgment, well, that, that, that's the penalty that you're liable for. That's the penalty that you deserve, the penalty under the law. Now, of course, Christian Israelites are judged by mercy, but that doesn't mean that we promote sin. We, we, because we're judged by mercy, we should embrace the law all the more.
That's what Yahweh our God expects of us in the acceptance of his gospel. And with that, I will present my interpretation, my commentary upon the book of Acts, chapter 11. I initially thought I would do chapters 11 and 12 at the same time, and, and well, I was just kidding myself. Discussing Acts chapter 10 over the past few programs, there are several conclusions that I think we could draw with the utmost certainty. First, in spite of Peter's words and his initial reactions to his vision, we must interpret Peter's visions by the words of Yahweh God, which Peter transmitted to us. And therefore, while that vision had included all of the four-footed creatures, creeping things, and birds, Peter was only beckoned not to consider profane or common the things which Yahweh had cleansed. So regardless of how Peter interpreted the vision, we have to follow the words of Yahweh God. Examining the words of the prophets in relation to this, we saw that Yahweh intended to cleanse the children of Israel, and only the children of Israel on the cross of Christ. Therefore, Peter's vision can only apply to Israelites. They, only they, are the things which Yahweh has cleansed. Secondly, in relation to this same thing, we saw the difference between the words unclean and common, which is also often rendered as profane. Things deemed unclean by the law of God cannot ever be cleansed. However, things which are clean by the law, but which have been soiled or defiled, are considered profane and can be cleansed. While we didn't discuss it in detail last week, we did read several prophecies, which also told us that even the name of Yahweh was profaned by the children of Israel in their many sins but that he would sanctify his name as well. That portion of the prophecy is not yet fulfilled. Therefore, with the gospel, we can deduct that sheep can indeed be cleansed, being clean under the law. However, pigs and dogs can never be cleansed. Finally, we saw that it is the cross of Christ by which the children of Israel were cleansed, and they sanctify themselves when they receive his word through the gospel. As he said in John 15:3, Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Therefore, once it was discovered by Peter that those of the nations received the Holy Spirit without water baptism, which was the baptism of John, then water was never mentioned in connection with baptism again. In this regard, Peter recalled the words of Christ, as we shall see here in Acts chapter 11, and which are also recorded in Acts chapter 1, at verse 5, I believe, that John immersed, or John baptized in water, 
but you shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit after not many days hence. With this we will commence with Acts chapter 11, from verse 1. And we'll take a long digression right after the first verse. And the ambassadors and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the nations also accepted the word of Yahweh. Accepted, not received, accepted the word of Yahweh. The Greek word is dekomahi, Strong's number 1209. It's to accept. The King James Version translates it simply to receive. The word receive is usually lambano, Strong's number 2983. Properly, dekomahi, according to Liddell and Scott, is to take, to accept, to receive what is offered. That's the key words there. To receive something that's offered. To accept or to approve. It was a matter of prophecy that lost Israel would hear and accept the gospel that those in Judea had rejected. Isaiah chapters 53 and 54, Ezekiel chapter 34, Hosea chapters 2 and 14 all demonstrate that the children of Israel had to accept the gospel. For this very reason, Paul wrote at Romans 15, verse 16, for me to be a minister of Yahshua Christ to the nations, performing the service of the good message of Yahweh in order that it be a presentation acceptable of the nations, having been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And that translation, my translation of Romans 15, 16, has been criticized. However, it is certainly valid. There are similar grammatical constructions in other places in Scripture which support it, such as at Luke 4.19. The message, the gospel was to be a message that would be accepted by the children of Israel. There are several witnesses to this scriptural concept which we shall now consider. Psalm 95, from verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before Yahweh, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart, as in the provocation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work, Paul told the Corinthians that they were descended from these people. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Then he told them that they shouldn't commit fornication, as these people did. Paul of Tarsus, in his letter to the Hebrews, illustrated the fulfillment of this scripture in the Gospel of Christ at Hebrews 3.15 and Hebrews 4.7. The children of Israel heard his voice in the Gospel, as Joshua Christ said in John chapter 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. Accepting the gospel, if you will hear his voice. Accepting the gospel, they return to Yahweh their God through Christ. Isaiah chapter 43, Yahweh. I, even I, from verse 25, 
and he that blots out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. Put me in remembrance, speaking to the children of Israel. The last, chap, the, the last 25 chapters of Isaiah from chapter 41 are looking forward to dispersed Israel, to the ancient children of Israel taken away by the Assyrians into captivity. That's who it's speaking to, the people in the isles and the coastlands. Put me in remembrance. Let us plead together that thou mayest be justified when the children of Israel accept the word of Yahweh their God. They are justified by him. However, that acceptance includes obedience. It's an expectation of obedience. Otherwise, you're really not accepting it right. Isaiah verse... I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 54, and I'll interpolate several comments. Remember from chapters, I don't know, maybe it's 50, 51, forward, 52, 53, 54. They're all a part of a very broad-ranging messianic prophecy. Even though 53 is the most popular among them, referred to, referred to by those who are pointing out messianic prophecies. It's actually the whole span of chapters that's a single messianic prophecy. Verse 54, from, I'm sorry, chapter 54 from verse 1. Sing, O barren that did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that did not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate, the children of the desolate, the non-Israelite people, the children of the desolate, than the children of the married wife, saith Yahweh, the married wife, the children of Israel. Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the, contain, the curtains of thine habitations. This is speaking to the children of Israel in their dispersion they would indeed enlarge the place of their tent. They would indeed stretch forth the curtains, the borders of their habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left. Thy seed shall inherit the nations and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. This was fulfilled in the Germanic tribes. The Israelites who came to conquer the inhabited world over the centuries following the Assyrian deportations. And of course the Romans were from Israel too. However, they were from, they were from Israel departed from the main body in Egypt 500 years before, or, or maybe 700, I'm sorry, 700 years before the Assyrians started to come into Palestine. Except that the Romans also were eventually conquered by the same Germanic tribes. At the time of Christ, all the Adamic world was dominated by the seed of Abraham. Whether they were the Parthians in the east, the Romans in the west, or the Germanic tribes in the north. And the Greeks are counted among the Romans in these statements, and most of the Greek tribes were also the seed of Abraham. The Danans and the Dorians were. The Ionians were not. 
We will discuss that at length in Acts chapter 17. Therefore, by the time of Christ, Abraham's seed had already inherited all of the other Genesis 10 nations. The Parthians, the Romans, and the Germanic tribes had already dominated the ancient world. The Parthians and the Romans control all of North Africa and Mesopotamia at the time of Christ. Fear not, verse 4 of Isaiah 54, fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood anymore. Shall not remember the reproach of thy widowhood anymore. That the history of true Israel was lost is therefore a matter of prophecy. This changed with the advent of modern archaeology and the rediscovery of the lost tribes. And even though it's often ridiculed, now the veil is slowly being lifted. Verse 5. For thy maker is thine husband. Yahweh of hosts is his name. And thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. The God of the whole earth shall he be called. Israel remarried to Yahweh in Christ, who even called himself the bridegroom. The whole earth shall indeed belong to Israel, and Yahweh will be the God of the whole earth when Christ returns to take the kingdom and the throne, something which he did not do during his first advent, although the people wanted to make him king. Verse 6. For Yahweh has called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit and a wife of youth. When thou wast refused, saith thy God, Yahweh called Israel the woman forsaken. He called Israel through the gospel of Christ. Israel had to accept that gospel to return to Yahweh. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness. Will I have mercy on thee, saith Yahweh thy Redeemer. Yahshua Christ, Yahweh in the flesh, is Redeemer. And all thy children shall be taught of Yahweh, or by Yahweh. And great shall be the peace of thy children. All thy children shall receive the message of the gospel of Christ, hearing his word and thereby being taught by him. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee, in judgment thou shalt condemn. 
This is the heritage of the servants of Yahweh. And their righteousness is of me, saith Yahweh. Israel's righteousness is of God and not of man. Therefore, all Israel shall indeed be saved, because that's the word of God and not the mind of man. Ezekiel chapter 34, from verse 6. My sheep wandered through all the mountains, and upon every high hill, yea, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth, and none did search or seek after them. For thus saith Yahweh God, behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. He did that himself, in person, on a small scale in Palestine, and on a wider scale through his gospel as it was transmitted by his apostles. It's still his words. It's still he seeking, since his apostles were ambassadors sent by him to the lost tribes of Israel. As a shepherd seeketh out his flock in a day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. In the cloudy and dark day. In the day of his vengeance. In the day of judgment. And I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries. And will bring them to their own land and feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and in all the inhabited places of the country. This process began about a century after the Assyrian deportations of Israel. I will feed them in a good pasture, and upon the high mountains of Israel shall, be, shall their fold be. There shall they lie in a good fold, and in the fat pasture shall they feed upon the mountains of Israel. This has a dual fulfillment, of course. We're expecting it again. This process, I'm sorry, not necessarily mountains in Palestine, the mountains of Israel are mountains belonging to the people Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will cause them to lie down, saith Yahweh God. I will seek that which was lost. Correlates perfectly with the words of Christ concerning his sheep. And bring again that which was driven away. And will bind up that which was broken and will strengthen that which was sick. Luke 7.22, the lame walk. But I will destroy the fat and the strong. And this we certainly await today. Revelation chapter 19. The marriage supper of the Lamb is the destruction of all his enemies. Only Israel is left standing in Revelation chapters 20. 1 and 22. I will feed them with judgment. And as for you, O my flock, thus saith Yahweh God, behold, I judge between cattle and cattle, between the rams and the he-goats. The sheep are preserved and the goats go into the fire. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh God, unto them, behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat cattle and between the lean cattle. Therefore will I save my flock, and they shall no more be a prey. And I will judge between cattle and cattle. And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even David my servant. David is a type for Christ. 
He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. And I, Yahweh, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, Yahweh, have spoken it, and I will make with them a covenant of peace, and will cause the evil beasts to cease out of the land. And they shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. Thus shall they know that I, Yahweh their God, am with them, and that they, even the house of Israel, are my people, saith Yahweh God. And the promise is only for the house of Israel. The word even being emphatic. And ye, my flock, the flock of my pasture, are men. And that word in Hebrew is Adam. No one else is left on the pasture. There are no wolves among the sheep. And no goats. They're in a lake of fire. Yahweh judged between the rams and the he-goats. He tells us in Matthew 25, the he-goats go into the lake of fire. And I am your God, saith Yahweh God. In the end, there were only sheep and only Adamic men. And ye, the flock of my pasture, are men. That word is Adam. Only Adamic men can be part of the flock of God. You may accept your bastard children today. Yahweh's not going to accept them tomorrow. You may accept your alien son and daughter-in-laws today. Yahweh's not going to accept them tomorrow. They're going to the lake of fire. There's no way around it. That's just the way it is. That's the word of God. Hosea chapter 2. And she shall follow after her lovers, a reference to Israel, the bride, but she shall not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better than with me than now. Therefore, behold, and I'm skipping to verse 14 of Hosea chapter 2. Therefore, behold, I, Yahweh, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her the gospel brought to the seed of Israel and the nations of Europe. And in that day, and it shall be at that day, saith Yahweh, that thou shalt call me Ishi, which means my husband, and shall no more call me Bali, which means my Lord. All of this can only have happened when the children of Israel and their dispersions had accepted the gospel of Christ and became Christian nations, thereby betrothing themselves to Christ as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Hosea 14. O Israel, return unto Yahweh thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take with you words, and turn to Yahweh, and say unto him, Take away all iniquity, and receive us graciously, so we will render the calves of our lips. To do that, Israel had to accept the gospel. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for mine anger is turned away from him. I will be as the dew unto Israel. He shall grow as the lily, and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. 
His branches shall spread, and his beauty shall be as the olive tree. And his smell is Lebanon. And verse 8, Ephraim shall say, What have I to do anymore with idols? I have heard him and observed him. I am like a green fir tree. From me is thy first, is thy fruit found. Through the presentation of the gospel, Ephraim is portrayed as having gave up his idols voluntarily. It is a clear matter of prophecy that the nations of Israel had to be presented with the gospel and that they then had to accept the word of Yahweh in order to be reconciled to him. The gospel was an offering, as Paul puts it, as I translated and I could defend the grammar of my translation, as I translated in Romans fifteen sixteen. The problem with the people that doubt my translation, their first argument comes from the idea that God can't present, can't offer anything to Israel. And they have that word offering confused with the sacrificial offerings. Of course, God doesn't sacrifice to Israel. That's ridiculous, right? God can offer something to Israel, and that something was certainly the gospel of Christ, as we've seen in all these Old Testament passages. It's a clear matter of prophecy that the nations of Israel had to be offered, they had to be presented with the gospel, and that they then had to accept, as we see the word dekomahi, to take something and accept it, used in the first verse of this chapter of Acts. They had to accept the word of Yahweh in order to be reconciled to him. Of course, the exhortations to obedience found in the gospel are a part of that acceptance. If you don't accept the exhortations to obedience to God, you're not really accepting the gospel. You're a hypocrite. The gospel was an offering to the nations of Israel, and a sheep indeed heard his voice, thereby becoming known as Christendom. Presenting Acts chapter 10, we have seen that Yahweh had only promised to cleanse the children of Israel, and he fulfilled that promise on the cross of Christ. Here we see and, and that we'll get into that in depth when I discuss Paul, hopefully later on this year or early in 2014, when I start to go through Paul's epistle to the Romans. Here we see that the gospel, too, was a matter of prophecy. And that that promise in prophecy is also exclusively for the children of Israel. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that anyone besides the children of Israel are to receive the word of God. Acts chapter 11, verse 2. Then when Peter went up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying that you went in with uncircumcised men and ate together with them. 
The phrase, the uncircumcised men, is literally with men who have foreskin. The Codex Beze has this verse to read. So then Peter, after a considerable time, desired to go to Jerusalem and calling to the brethren and reinforcing them, making much speech throughout those regions, teaching them, he also came to them and announced the favor of Yahweh to them, but those of the circumcision contended with him, saying that you went in with uncircumcised men and ate together with them. That's a, um, a long interpretation in the Codex Beze. There are many long interpretations in the Codex Beze. There are many innovations in the Codex Beze. Interesting, that's the only codex of all these ancient codices from the, from the 4th and 5th centuries AD, which I've um, used as my primary authorities for the Christogenian New Testament, Christogenian New Testament, especially the codices Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, along with many of the ancient papyri, where, they're, where they have passages that are readable. The Codex Beze has the highest number of lengthy interpolations and innovations in the scripture, and it was the only one that was available of all the codices to the King James translators. And it's virtually useless and thankfully, for the most part, they didn't follow it, but they did have it available to them. It was in France at the time, I believe. Beze is actually the, um, the name of a person, Thomas Beze, I think his name was, who, who had come to own this, a, a wealthy man who had come to own this codex at, a peer, at, at some time in the Middle Ages. I, I, I don't remember if it was 14th, 15th, 16th centuries, but it was at that time, I believe. Here it should be noted, for all those who may be persuaded by the deceivers who purport that somehow the Judeans were dark-skinned or olive-skinned, as the Arabs of today are. The word Arab means mixed, for the evidence of that, one can see Strong's Hebrew lexicon numbers 6148, 6150, 6151, and 6154. You could go resort to the book of Exodus where it talks about the mixed multitude that followed Israel out of Egypt. And that word mixed is the Hebrew word Ereb, which means mixed. That's why they translated it that way. It actually means, it comes from a verb which means to grow dark. And the only way people grow dark, white people, is by mixing. And that is the reason for the color of their skin, because they're mixed. The Greeks, throughout all of their own literature, from the earliest poets, Homer and Hesiod, through the Middle Ages, all the way through the Byzantine period, described themselves as white-skinned, fair-haired people in both their literature and in their art. While physical descriptions of people in the Old Testament are rare, there are some. David is described as being ruddy, 1 Samuel 16, 12, and 17, 42. So he must have been white in order to be ruddy. The Hebrew word Adam itself means ruddy. 
Jeremiah described the Nazarites as being whiter than milk and ruddy in body at Lamentations 4.7. And so they must have been white. They couldn't have been brown. In the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 10, words attributed to the king's bride describe him as being white and ruddy. The king, in that poetic work of scripture, is actually Christ, and the bride is actually Israel. It's all an allegory. The love story truly represents the relationship between Yahweh God and Israel. Now, added to all of this, we have the testimony of Josephus. In Antiquities, Book 12, Chapter 5, who, speaking of certain of his countrymen, said, and I quote, they were desirous to leave the laws of their country and the Judean way of living according to them and to follow the king's laws. At this time, the king was the Seleucid king, the Greek Seleucid king Antiochus. And the Grecian way of living, so we see that Josephus is writing about Hellenists, and that's a word we've seen frequently here in the book of Acts. And to get back to Josephus, he says, wherefore they desired his permission to build them a gymnasium at Jerusalem. And when he had given them leave, in other words, when Seleucus granted them to build the gymnasium, they also hid the circumcision of their genitals that even when they were naked, they might appear to be Greeks. Now, how the hell could brown people do that? The Judeans were white. They were as white as the Greeks were. And so the reason for the designations circumcision and uncircumcision throughout the New Testament should be clear. It was the only reliable way to tell Judeans and non-Judeans, Greeks and Romans and Parthians and Syrians. It was the only reliable way to tell them apart whether or not their genitals were circumcised. If the Judeans were all brown and the Greeks were all white, that wouldn't be the distinction. The distinction would be those honkies well, those crackers, those crackers, we can't be converting those crackers. Okay, that's a digression, but it's absolutely true. Acts chapter 11, verse 4. But Peter, beginning in order, exhibited to them, saying, I was in a city, Joppa, praying, and saw a vision in a trance, a vessel descending somewhat as a great linen cloth with four corners being let down from the heaven and came as far as me. At which staring I considered and saw the four-footed creatures of the earth and the beasts and the reptiles and the birds of heaven. Then I heard a voice saying to me, Arise, Peter, offer sacrifice and eat. And I said, Not at all, Master, because not ever has a profane or, or unclean thing entered into my mouth. Profane or unclean. Now, in Acts chapter 10, it says profane and unclean, or unclean and profane, unclean and common, I forget the exact order, but the conjunction is and and not or. 
However, it can be told from Greek grammar, even though I translated very literally what Peter meant by it was profane and unclean, meaning two different categories, not all one category. This substantiates the understanding that I gave of that in my exposition of those scriptures last week and the week before, profane or unclean in the Greek here. But the voice from the heaven answered a second time, the things which Yahweh has cleansed, you do not deem profane. Verse 10, and this happened a third time, and everything was drawn up again into the heaven. The vision disappeared. Here once again we see that regardless of Peter's response to this vision, the words which he attributes to Yahweh God as instruction are the things which Yahweh has cleansed you do not deem profane. We as Christians must not formulate our doctrine from the picture of the vision which we draw in our heads. Or from Peter's response to the vision. Rather, we should formulate our doctrine on what Peter reported as having come from Yahweh God himself. The word of Yahweh is related by his promise, by his prophets. Promise to cleanse Israel as a condition of their redemption. And this promise cannot be extended to any by man to anyone else. Jeremiah 33 from verse 7. And I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return and will build them as at the first. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities whereby they have sinned and whereby they have transgressed against me. The promise applies to no one but the children of Israel. Everyone else is excluded. They're excluded because they're simply not part of any of those promises and those covenants. Only Israel is clean on the cross. Only Israel is sanctified to God. Verse 11. And behold, at once three men stopped at the house which we were in. Those sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, not making any distinction. The house which we were in. Some codices and the majority text had the house which I was in. So, so therefore does the King James Version. The 3rd century papyrus P45 and the Codex Beze both want the phrase not making any distinction, which the King James translates as doubting nothing. Before his vision, Peter would not even have entertained uncircumcised men, as he is recorded as having professed in Acts chapter 10, verse 28, where it says that he said to them, you know how it is unlawful for a Judean man to join to or associate with another tribe. Yet Yahweh has explained to me 
not to call any man profane or unclean. Now, right there, we have Peter's interpretation of the vision in Acts chapter 28. That's fine, but that's the way Peter understood it. That's not what Yahweh said. It's not what Yahweh said. Peter didn't always say the right thing. Peter was the stubborn apostle. Peter, if you follow him through the ministry of Christ, was always saying the wrong thing. He was only a man. His interpretation is not to call any man profane or unclean. Yahweh said, and Peter repeated it several times in Acts chapters 10 and 11, Yahweh said, don't call any man at anything which Yahweh has cleansed profane. Let's quote verse 9 again in this verse, in this chapter. The things which Yahweh has cleansed, you do not deem profane. So Yahweh's words and Peter's words are two different things. I will formulate my Christian doctrine on the words of Yahweh, which is in accordance with the promises of the prophets. Peter realizes that later in his epistle when he tells the assemblies of Asia and Galatia and Bithynia and, and the other places that he wrote to that they were a holy nation, a peculiar people. That, and he quoted Hosea also in that epistle that they had not received mercy, but now they had mercy. Hosea chapters 1 and 2, he cited them both. Speaking only to the children of Israel. So Peter's realization when he wrote his epistle was in accordance with the words of Yahweh and the prophets. His interpretation here isn't quite there yet. The book of Acts is a book of transition. The rest of verse 12. And these six brethren also came with me, and we entered into the man's house. And he related to us how he had seen the messenger, or the angel, standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa, and summon Simon, who is called Peter, who shall speak things to you by which you and all of your house shall be preserved. And with my beginning to speak, the Holy, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, even as also upon us in the beginning. He's referring to the events of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Then I remembered the saying of the prince as he spoke. Indeed, John baptized in water. The, King, the Christogenian New Testament says he immersed. I'm using the word baptized here emphatically. But you shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if Yahweh gave to them the same gift as he also gave to us, believing upon Prince Yahshua Christ, am I anyone who is able to prevent Yahweh? Peter was arguing, remember? Peter was arguing about the... He was arguing with the Judeans because they had accused him of communing with the uncircumcised. And he's saying that the Holy Spirit descended upon these people. He couldn't prevent Yahweh from 
placing the Holy Spirit on the uncircumcised. That was the argument. <laughs> that was the argument that Paul faced all throughout his ministry. In defiance of the context of Peter's explanation, the Codex Beze extends the question in verse 17, inserting the words, not to give the Holy Spirit to them believing in him. It is fully evident from the account that the Spirit descended upon them while Peter was still speaking, and before he baptized or laid hands upon any of them. And that is the reason why Peter gives the account. There are many such interpolations in the Codex Beze. Even though by his own account, he did not recognize it immediately. Here, as Peter recollects what had happened in the house of Cornelius, and when I say his own account, I mean the, um, the, the account of his actual presence in the house of Cornelius. Here in this chapter, Peter recollects what had happened in the house of Cornelius, and we see him admit the realization that water baptism was for John, and that Christ had told the apostles, but you shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit. With this realization on the part of Peter, <clears throat> the ritual of water baptism is not again mentioned in connection with the transmission of the gospel of Christ. It's not mentioned anywhere again. Rather, Peter says in his first epistle that baptism is, 1 Peter 3.21, not a putting away of the filth of the flesh, but a demand of a good conscience for God through the resurrection of Yahshua Christ. Therefore, Paul asks at Romans 6.3, Are you ignorant that as long as we are baptized in Christ Yahshua, into his death we are baptized? Not in the water. In his epistle to the Ephesians, Paul told them that there was but one baptism, Ephesians 4, 5. And that Christ also loved the assembly and had surrendered himself for it in order that he would consecrate it, cleansing it in the bath of the water of the word, where we see that bath of water is used allegorically at Ephesians 5, 25 and 26. As the book of Acts is clearly a book of transition, and as it took some time for the apostles to fully reconcile the scripture and the gospel in their own understanding, we should follow them and not follow after men who would cling to the rituals and the works of the law, imagining their cleansing and their salvation to be by their own works and by the hands of men when indeed it has already long ago been effected by Yahweh their God. This is, in true, this is true in spite of the fact that many early Christians clung to the baptism ritual, just as many modern Christians do so today. Since the dawn of our race, men have heeded to themselves rather than seeking to understand and heed to the word of Yahweh our God. It is his word and his work which is our only true source of cleansing. Keep his commandments. It's that simple. Cleanse yourselves of the things of the world. You do that when you sincerely come to Christ. Verse 18, 
And hearing these things, they were silent and extolled Yahweh, saying, Then also to the nations has Yahweh given repentance for life. Now, whether all the apostles understood at the time that these were all the nations of dispersed Israel is immaterial. It can be fully demonstrated from nearly all of Paul's epistles and from Peter's first epistle, as I've already explained here, that those apostles later understood as much. They did understand that these were the dispersion of Israel. The prophecy of Yahweh is fulfilled, whether or not man is conscious of it. Christ himself knew that these things would be misinterpreted by man. And therefore, Christ himself predicted, prophesied universalism when he gave us the parable of the net in Matthew chapter 13. Christ prophesied universalism, Matthew 13, 47. Again, the kingdom of the heavens is like a net having been cast into the sea, and it gathers from out of every race, which, when it is full, bringing up upon the shore and sitting, they gather the good ones into vessels, but the rotten ones they cast out. Thusly it shall be at the consummation of the age. So we have good races, we have a good race, and we have rotten races. We have fish of a good race and fish of rotten races. Thusly it shall be at the consummation of the age. The messengers shall go out and they shall separate the wicked from the midst of the righteous and they shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's only one good race. There's only one righteous race. And that is the white race, the race of Adam, represented today in these last days by the true children of Israel. Only Israel was cleansed on the cross of God. Only Israel is justified as righteous by the word of God. And that, too, is a matter of Scripture. Paul explains... Paul explains in Romans chapter 5, that the Adamic race is rendered righteous by one decision of one man, Christ, just as the Adamic race fell into disgrace and into sin and into death by one decision of one man, who was Adam. That's the entire purpose of his discourse concerning Adam and sin in Romans chapter 5. Acts 11, verse 19. So then, those who were scattered from the tribulation which happened after Stephen had spread so far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except only to Judeans. Here we once again see that the household of Cornelius were the first to receive the gospel who were not Judeans, who were not of the circumcision. This must include the so-called Ethiopian eunuch, who must have been a Judean. The people of Samaria, to whom the apostles had preached, who must have been circumcised. And the men of the various nations listed in Acts chapter 2, they must all have been Judeans. Verse 20. 
And there were among them some Cypriot and Kyrenian, or Cyrenian, men who coming into Antioch spoke also to the Hellenists, announcing the good message of Prince Yahshua. And the hand of the prince was with them, and a great number of believers returned to the prince. Since the people of the nations were just beginning to be presented with the gospel, these men of Cyprus and Cyrene were evidently Judeans also, and so were the Hellenists of Antioch. For if they were actually Greek, they would not have been called Hellenists, a word used for non-Greeks who follow Greek manners, customs, and even laws that we, we have seen here where we cited Flavius Josephus's Antiquities at our commentary on Acts 11, verse 2. However, here where the text has Hellenists in agreement with the Codices Vaticanus, Laudianus, and the majority text, the Codices Alexandrinus and Beze doesn't have Hellenists. They have Greeks. The Vaticanists, I would say, is and, and the Laudianus are the more reliable of those four manuscripts. The true reading is difficult to ascertain from the context, and either reading may be correct. Oddly, the Codex Sinaiticus, which is also one of the most um, generally most reliable of the ancient codices, the Codex Sinaiticus has neither Hellenists nor Greeks. Instead, it has the word for gospel which is apparently a gloss. Verse 22. And the account was heard in the ears of the assembly, which was in Jerusalem, concerning them, meaning concerning the new converts at Antioch. And they sent out Barnabas unto Antioch. Barnabas was introduced to us at the end of chapter 4 of Acts. The codices Beze, Laudianus, and the majority text have to go through unto Antioch. Verse 23. Who arriving and seeing the favor of Yahweh rejoiced and encouraged them all with purpose of heart to remain among the number of the prince because he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith and a considerable crowd was added to the prince or to the Lord. Where it says among the number of the prince in the Christian New Testament, some manuscripts are missing a preposition. The Codex Vaticanus and other manuscripts have the preposition. The preposition is N preceding the noun, and, and that preposition is, is most literally in, but it also means among or among the number of, as Liddell and Scott also defined the word. It's among the number of the prince frequently in the Christian New Testament, among the number of those who follow Christ, among the number of Christians, however you want to interpret it, among the number of the prince is a literal translation. Verse 25, And he departed for Tarsus to search for Saulus, and finding him brought him to Antioch, Antiochia fully, and he came to them, even a whole year, 
to gather in the assembly and to teach a considerable crowd. And the students in Antioch were first to be labeled Christians. The Codex Beze, and I'm going to read this, it's a long interpolation. The Codex Beze has verses 25 and 26 to read. And hearing that Saulus is in Tarsus, he departed searching for him. And as he met with him, he exhorted him to come to Antioch, who arriving a whole year gathered with a considerable crowd. And then in Antioch, they first labeled the students Christians. Now Barnabas didn't have to hear that Saul was in Tarsus. Barnabas must have already known that Saul was in Tarsus from the account in Acts chapter 9. And we therefore see another unnecessary and strange innovation on the text by the Codex Beze. It was Barnabas who originally introduced Paul, to Tar- Paul of Tarsus to the original apostles as described in Acts 9.27. Strangely, the Codex Sinaiticus, where it says Christians here, and the students in Antioch were were first to be labeled Christians. The Codex Sinaiticus has Christians, C-H-R-E-S, T-I-A-N-S, an E instead of an I, the vowel in Greek being an eta rather than an iota. The Codex Sinaiticus repeats the odd spelling where the word occurs elsewhere in Acts 26.28 and at 1 Peter 4.16, questions. The reason can only be conjectured and I will not offer one. The earliest extant manuscript of the Annals of Tacitus also has the Latin equivalent of Christians with an E, where he mentions Christ and Christians in his work in Book 15 of the Annals. Among profane writers, both Flavius Josephus and the Roman historian Suetonius use the term as we do today, writing Christians with an I. Josephus mentions Christians, I believe, once. Once the word appears in Antiquities. Suetonius was a historian of the early 2nd century AD, so he was just a few decades after Tacitus wrote. There are some today who reject the label Christian. I've seen people that claim to be Christian Israel, or or, or, I'm sorry, claim to be Israel identity, who accept the Israel identity message do this. To do so is to reject the scripture where Yahweh God says he would place his name upon the children of Israel. Christ had many names, such as Yahshua, which is his given name, Emmanuel, which is a title with a meaning. He also had other titles. However, it is recorded 
that he himself accepted the title Christ as a name in John chapter 4 in verses 25 and 26. The woman, speaking of the woman at the well in Samaria, the woman says to him, I know that Messiah comes, who is called Christ. When he should come, he shall announce to us all things. Yahshua says to her, I am he who is speaking to you. He admits that he is called Christ. This is ascertained in scriptures such as Matthew 24, 5 where Christ is recorded as having said, for many shall come by my name, saying, I am the Christ. He admits that the Christ is his name, and they shall deceive many. So Yahshua himself tells us that his name is Christ. It's a title. It's still his name. Nobody else, nobody else in our worldview should bear that name. Now, this doesn't mean that he was not named by these other terms, such as Yahshua or the Nazarene or Emmanuel, which means God walks with us, and which is literally true of the Christ. Yet Christian is the name which the apostles accepted. This can only be the fulfillment of prophecy, such as that found in Isaiah chapter 43, where it says, But now, thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. And then it says in Isaiah that he would leave the ancient names to the people of Jerusalem and call his servants by another name. 1 Peter 4.15 For not any among you must suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler in the matters of others. But if, as a Christian, you must not be ashamed, but you must honor Yahweh by this name. Because the time of judgment is to begin for the house of Yahweh. But at first for us, what is the end for those who are disobedient to the good message of Yahweh? I have seen men who accept the Israel identity message in one form or another, yet reject the term Christian. I've seen clowns say, oh, I'm not a Christian, I'm an Israelite. They may as well be Jews, right? Or I'm not a Christian, I'm a follower of Yahweh. They may as well be Jews too. They claim to follow Yahweh and reject Christ. Now, some of them often do this because the term Christian has come to be confused with the popular Judaized form of religion, which is now taught in the formerly Christian churches. What these short-sighted men do not realize, however, is that the enemies of our God will corrupt and distort any label which is placed upon the people of God. It does not matter what that label is. We must stop surrendering our language to our adversaries. For my part, I am a Christian. That is the scripture. If I have to qualify that to someone who gets confused with the fact that I might be 
a Judeo-Christian, then I'll qualify it. Verse 27, I'm not going to let the Jews steal my language. And in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem into Antioch. The Greek word prophetes has several senses. It is basically, according to Liddell and Scott, one who speaks for a god and, and interprets his will to man, a prophet, the traditional Old Testament sense. And they supply several examples from the Greek classics. The Hebrew prophets both spoke for Yahweh God, and sometimes, not all the time, sometimes, as we see in Daniel, interpreted his will to men. Daniel chapter 2 is a perfect example, Daniel chapter 4. Yet in the New Testament, a prophet may also be one who merely interprets the word of God, which seems to be the sense of the word as Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And as Peter uses the word prophecy at the end of chapter 1 of his epistle. The third sense is that a prophet can be one who reveals things which are not openly known. Examples of this use of the word prophet are found in, one, in John chapter 4 where the woman at the well exclaims to Yahshua that he is a prophet because he, re he revealed her marital history to her which no ordinary man could have known. And that also seems to be how Paul uses the word in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, in verses 24 and 25. In his epistle there, Paul says, but if perhaps all might interpret prophecy, or some, and some unbeliever or uninstructed may enter, he has brought convincing proof by all, he is examined by all, the secrets of his heart become evident, and thus falling upon his face, he will worship Yahweh, announcing that truly Yahweh is among you. In other words, if we could prophesize, we could reveal to men things that we shouldn't know, their secrets, and that way those men would become believers in the word of God. That's what Paul's saying in those passages of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. In chapter 19 of the Revelation, we read in verse 10, for the testimony of Yahshua is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Yahshua, the spirit of prophecy. The prophets of the Old Testament all looked forward to the Messiah, to Yahshua Christ, to the delivery of the children of Israel and the children of the wider Adamic race. That's the purpose for, for well, well, that's the end of this existence is our delivery in Christ. And there's no way around that. So the testimony of Yahshua is the spirit of prophecy or of interpreting prophecy. For that reason, or so it seems, Liddell and Scott offer a secondary definition of the word, an inspired preacher and teacher, which seems to be how the word is used here of those who bear the gospel in the manner of Revelation 19.10. Yet the next verse reveals that some of these may also foresee future events. So my point is that the word prophet 
can be used in several different senses in any one place or, or in any one epistle, as Paul did. He used it in one sense in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians and in another sense in chapter 14. Here in verse 28, it's used of a man who has the gift of foretelling future events. And this man, Hagabus, did that several times. And there arose one of them named Hagabus, who indicated through the Spirit that a great famine is going to come upon the whole inhabited world, which happened in the time of Claudius, Claudius Caesar. This Hagabus, or Agabus in the King James Version, is very likely the same man who some years later predicted the impending arrest of Paul, which is recorded in Acts chapter 21, verse 10. That this famine is that which happened in the time of Claudius indicates that Luke wrote this account retrospectively. This supports the assertions made here in the beginning of our presentation of Acts, where it was explained that Luke wrote these accounts from stories collected from various eyewitnesses until the time when he himself appears in the records in Acts chapter 16. Luke first appears not by name, but by his having written in the first person in certain places beginning in Acts chapter 16 which is after Paul and Barnabas argue their position against circumcision for uncircumcised converts before the elder apostles in Jerusalem, which is recorded in Acts 15. Now, there are extant and early assertions that Luke was indeed a Greek from Antioch, and so he may have been a Christian at this early time, Acts chapter 11, However, it is still quite clear that this account is written retrospectively. So Luke wrote this from collected records, and he is still writing it at this point in Acts chapter 11 from collected records, from the records and, and accounts related to him by others. Claudius, in this case Claudius Caesar, he was the emperor from 41 to 54 AD. This famine is mentioned in Eusebius's Ecclesiastical History in Book 2 and in Josephus's Antiquities several times in Book 20, chapters 3, 4, and 5. Now, it is also known that the death of Herod Agrippa I, which is recorded near the end of Acts chapter 12, that occurred in 44 AD. And here at this point, it is obviously still sometime before 41 AD, even though we're at the end of Acts chapter 11. Verse 29. Then of the students, just as anyone prospered, each of them set aside for supplies to send to those brethren dwelling in Judea, which they then did, sending to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saulus, Barnabas and Paul. The word rendered supplies in this context, where the King James Version has relief, 
is actually diaconia. It's a service, an attendance, a duty, administration. However, the corresponding verb, diaconeo, diaconeo is to furnish or to supply, or in the passive voice, to be supplied. So here I translate the noun as supplies. The need for this relief is often linked to this aforementioned famine by commentators. And that may be the case here. However, it is evident that the Christians in Judea were pretty much ostracized from society and always under the threat of harm due to their being persecuted by the Judeans. And we shall see that in Acts chapter 12 once again. Therefore, those who could work were obliged to assist them, as we see here. Paul and the people of the assemblies, which he gathered in Europe, were still assisting the saints in Jerusalem many years later. And that's evident in his first epistle to the Corinthians in chapter 16, where he says, Now concerning the collection that is for the saints, just as I prescribed to the assemblies of Galatia, in that manner also you should do. On every first of the week, each of you by himself must lay up, treasuring whatever he may grant for the journey, in order that when I should come, there would not be collections then. And when I have arrived, whomever you may approve, I will send them with instructions. In other words, send them to Judea, to Jerusalem, to the saints, with whatever collection, with whatever offering, whatever gift they had collected. To have your kindness carried off to Jerusalem. And that perhaps it would be sufficient for me also to make the conveyance, they shall go across along with me. The same thing is mentioned again in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This ends our presentation of Acts chapter 11. Thank you for listening, and praise Yahweh. I will be here tomorrow night. Addressing the Shills, part four, and it will probably be a part five next week. Thank you and good night.